Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. Our church's vision is to have a passion for God and compassion for people. We hope that the teachings in this podcast will encourage you as you seek to follow Christ and grow in your faith. Now, let's get into today's message. Well, good evening once again. I meant to say something earlier that I forgot to say. There is a photo station out in the lobby, and if you're into that kind of thing, which I hope you are, you could totally get a picture with your family there. And if you need somebody to take the picture, I would love to take the picture for you. Just throwing that out there. Well, I don't know if you're like me this time of year. Uh, The days are real short, and the nights are fairly long, right, because we live in Northeast Ohio. And it gets dark at like 4 o'clock, it seems like. And it doesn't get light again to like eight or nine o'clock uh, the next morning. So I'm kind of a freak about natural, natural light anyway. I really love natural light. And so right about eight o'clock in the morning when all the sun comes up, you'll find me uh, running to our living room. Well, maybe not running, but going into our living room and opening up all the window shades as far as possible to let the maximum amount of light uh, in because I really just like light. And one of the, one of those, uh, I'm one of those people who really just cannot survive in a cubicle somewhere with fluorescent lights just baking my soul into the, into oblivion because I really like natural light. And maybe you can identify with me in that way. Uh, there's only one place where I don't like natural light and that is in my kids' bedrooms. If you have or have ever had kids, uh, then you know how this works. Uh, when kids are young, toddlers, they need to take naps, but they don't really want to take naps. Uh, if it isn't dark in their room, if it, if it isn't dark in the room, then they won't take a nap. And so instead, they'll just stay awake and they'll play and they'll do whatever, right? We all know how this works. So for some reason, they associate darkness with sleep and light with not sleep. And so when we put them down for a nap, and it's light in their rooms, what happens? We all know what happens. Uh, They become cranky, they become irritable the rest of the day, which results inevitably in me becoming cranky and irritable the rest of the day, which nobody wants that. So we make sure that if we're going to lay our sun down for a nap, we've got the big, thick, darkening shades uh, that you just pull those down, pull those puppies down, and it just blocks out any hint of natural light whatsoever from entering the room. And so it's like a cave in there almost. It's great. Uh, So that way my son or my daughter is able to take a nap and not drive us crazy the rest of the day, which is always nice. Now, why tell you that? Here's why I tell you that. I think that those two responses are how we are able to respond to the light. There's really only two things that we can do with light. We can either receive it, we can open the shades, or we can reject it and we can shut it out. We cannot stop the sun from shining. We can either receive it or we can reject it. And likewise, as we think about Jesus, the true light who has come into the world, we similarly only have two responses to Jesus. We can either reject him or we can receive him. Those are the only two responses that are possible. And so maybe for some of us, you'll reject the light and you'll shut them out of your life. 
Others of us will receive him, and you'll open the window shades of your soul, as it were, and allow his light and his truth and his presence to stream in and to change things. And that's what the Apostle John wants us to see this evening as we examine together uh, this text so we can understand these two responses and get some insight into how they work and how we would be prone to one of these responses. So I want us to notice that John starts with a paradox beginning in verse 9 of chapter 1 of his gospel. Here's what he says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And so he was coming into the world, but he was in the world. It makes you go, how exactly does that work? In what sense was he already in the world? In what sense was he coming into the world? Though he was in the world, he was already present. And then notice in verse 10, I want to show you three ways that he was already present. It says, and though the world was made through him. So how exactly was Jesus present even before his incarnation where he put on flesh and became the baby in the manger that we celebrate tonight? One of the ways he was present is as John has already told us because he made the world. The world was made through him and so he was present as creator. The Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. One of the basic foundational truths that Scripture always comes back to is that what ultimately puts us all under, us under obligation for acknowledging God's existence is the fact that we live in the world that he made. And creation itself, the natural order, testifies to the reality and the existence of the creator and we could see that he's present even as we observe what he's made and so think about it this way if you were to go outside after church tonight and you find a, a watch laying on the sidewalk you would assume or you would not assume that this evening it must have rained watches right that'd be kind of weird you would assume it fell off of somebody's wrist after church and you would conclude that there's a designer behind this watch. That this watch was made, that this was constructed, it was fabricated by someone. And that's the same argument that the Bible makes about creation. It's saying, look, the reality of the natural world testifies to the existence of a creator. And so Jesus was in the world by the fact that he created it. And then the second way he was in the world was through law. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, that it pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. The law of God, the commands of God, the things that God teaches us and instructs us in his scripture exist for his righteousness sake, the Bible says, to magnify his goodness, his righteousness, and his glory, to give us a sense and inclination of what he is like in his character. And so Jesus was present in creation, and he was present in the world through the law of God. And then finally, the third way he is in the world is through his people. The Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself? You see, God's redemption of his people, what he's doing and that he is making a name for himself, the Bible says, testifying to his goodness and to his glory. 
And so God's work in redemption and salvation, the existence of his people declares to us that he's present in the world. And these are the three ways that the Bible shows us that God is present in the world. And yet John the Apostle says he was in the world, but he was coming into the world. God was taking on human flesh. Right? That's a Christmas story. The divine was heading into the created order, stepping into time and space and history, taking on human form, clothing himself in flesh. This is the watershed moment in history. And not only that, this is a watershed issue in your life. If this happened, if the incarnation happened, if God took on flesh and entered into our world, that changes everything. There are massive implications if that's true. And because of that reason, the Christian gospel is not so much a theological reality as it is a historical one. The question that this presses upon us is, did this happen? Did God enter into human history? And if so, that changes everything. This is where we've gone wrong if we've gone wrong. Either this happened and it changes everything, or this didn't happen, and this is all a colossal waste of time. You just go home and open presents. But this is the question, did God become man? The incarnation is the definitive doctrine of Christianity. The defining mark of the gospel, the light has come into the world. God has stepped into human time and space and history. That's the crucial reality of Advent. That's the core truth that John is writing about and speaking about and opening our eyes to. And he said, listen, there's only two responses to this reality. Only two responses to this reality. And he says to us, we can, we can reject him. That's the first one. And we can see that in, in verse 10. He was in the world. And through the, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, the Bible says. So I want us to see here that, that the phrases did not recognize and did not receive are parallel phrases. There are two ways of saying the same thing, but in different words. And what John is saying to us here is this. There's two kinds of rejection. On the one hand, there's the rejection of the world. He says the world did not recognize him. Notice. Some Bible translations say they did not know him. But it's not an intellectual kind of word. It's a volitional word. It's not saying that they didn't know him. In other words, they didn't comprehend him. It's saying that they did not receive him. They didn't embrace him. They didn't welcome him as God come in human flesh. They did not receive him. And the first way we can reject Jesus is the way of outright dismissal. We say, this is false. This is phony. I don't believe this. It's not true. It's a myth. It's a fairy tale. It's fiction. I don't want anything to do with this. For some of you, that's where you are this evening. That's my son. It's okay. But for some of you, that's where we're at tonight. That's your disposition towards the whole gospel message. You don't even believe that it happened. You don't have a category for it. And I want to ask you, would you humble yourself? Would you be open to the possibility? Would you open your mind and heart to what John is saying? Would you be open to doubt your own doubts? Would you be open to question your own assumptions? Would you be open to hear with new ears the truth that the Apostle John is speaking of to us tonight? 
that at the end of the day, unbelief is never an issue of the mind. It's an issue of the will. You may have really good intellectual doubts and intelligent questions that, you, that need to be traced out. And you may be the kind of person that just can't embrace something in belief until you've sorted out the questions that you have intellectually. I get it, but here's what I want you to know. Whatever intellectual questions that you have, they have answers. There's over 2,000 years of Christian philosophy to answer whatever intellectual questions that you have. So at the end of the day, what sustains unbelief is not intellectual doubts, but rather volitional unwillingness. It's saying, I will not believe this. I don't want this to be true. I don't want to deal with the implications of this being true. I've been there. So I want to invite you this evening to doubt your doubts and to be humble about your questions. If you're prone to reject the gospel without giving it a fair hearing, would you be willing to enter into dialogue to open up the possibility that this is true? John said the world did not know him. It didn't recognize him. There's a worldly rejection that's just an outright dismissal of Christ that many people are prone to. But notice, there's a second type of rejection. Notice what John says in verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Did you notice that? They did not receive him. His, his own. This is talking about the Jewish people of Jesus' day. Jesus' own heritage, his own lineage, his own tradition. These were the religious people of the day who loved the law of God, who were committed to the sort of commandments of God. These are good, conservative, traditional, religious folk we're talking about, and it says that they too did not receive Christ. So I want us to see that we can reject Jesus in an outright worldly way, but there's also a religious rejection of Jesus too, where you can be religious and yet reject Jesus. So what does this religious rejection look like? How does that work? Where worldly rejection is an outright dismissal. It's saying, this cannot possibly be true. I'm rejecting this. Religious rejection is more subtle because what, is re what it really is is conditional acceptance. It's placing conditions upon Jesus in which we'll receive him and follow him. And that's exactly what the religious people of Jesus' day did. And they say to Jesus, here's what we want from you. Here's what we want to see. Here's the kind of Messiah that we're willing to receive. One who will deliver us from the Romans. One who will show us signs and wonders. One who will accomplish for us the kind of deliverance that we want to experience politically. Sound familiar? They didn't immediately reject him. They rejected him when he didn't turn out to be the kind of Messiah that they wanted him to be. And when he turned out to not fit the conditions of what they wanted a Messiah to look like. And don't we do the same thing today? Religious people today likewise place conditions upon Jesus, right? And it's saying, Jesus, I'm willing to accept you and receive you as long as you look like what I want you to look like. As long as you make me prosperous and successful. And that's a really common false gospel in our culture. It's saying to Jesus, I'm willing to follow you as long as it doesn't mean rejection from my friends. Or I'm willing to believe you and follow you, Jesus, as long as I can also believe that all roads lead to God. So that I don't have to be some sort of exclusivist. Do you doubt that this sort of religious rejection of Jesus is possible? Let me give you some examples of what it looks like. Religious people accepting Jesus because he fits their conditions. Listen to this. 
Muslims accept Jesus as a great prophet of God, but not as the Son of God who's co-equal with God the Father. Mormons accept Jesus as created being, being born as a result of the marital union between God and his goddess wife. Jehovah's Witnesses accept Jesus as the incarnation of Michael, the archangel, who never rose bodily from the dead, but only spiritual. Christian scientists accept Jesus as an expression or manifestation of the true and higher self that is present within each of us. These would all say that they accept Jesus and that they receive Jesus, but not as Jesus comes to us. Jesus as he meets the preconditions of their religious beliefs. And such were some of us. Some of us were saved out of these kinds of false religions, and praise God for that. And some of you might even be upset that I would call those false religions, and which just shows that we have a conditional acceptance of Jesus, right? Because you want it to be okay for all those people to think what they think about Jesus. It's not okay that Jesus defines who Jesus is. And some of you might even be here this evening embracing one of those views of Jesus. The Apostle John begs you to see that you need to receive Jesus on his terms. Based on who he says he is, the light has come. The question is, will you receive him? But let's get even closer to home, shall we? Because here's the big challenge for us in our day and age. Even the language of this passage, even the language of receiving Christ, has been twisted to mean something different from what the Apostle John once intends it to mean. So what that means is this, it's quite possible for many of us to think that we've received Christ when in reality we really haven't. So I want to speak very carefully and very precisely here for the next few moments in order to clarify and frame out the difference, helping you see what John is saying versus what many in our culture are saying. Each of us need to ask this question, what need do I understand Jesus to meet? What need do I understand Jesus to meet? What we're really getting at here is what is my reason for receiving Jesus? In other words, what problem do I believe receiving Jesus solves? Because the gospel at its heart is a problem-solution message. Here's how the gospel is preached by many in our culture. Do you need purpose in your life? Do you need meaning? Do you have feel unfulfilled, insecure, lonely, abandoned? then receive Jesus. He'll come in your life and he'll give you meaning and purpose and friendship. And he'll meet the needs that you have not to feel alone and discouraged in the world. Is that the gospel? No, it's not. Now, does Jesus bring those things? Purpose and meaning, wholeness, happiness? Yes, but the lack of those things is not the problem. The lack of those things is a symptom of the problem. Jesus is not the means to the end of you having a better, more fulfilled life. Jesus is the light of the world who came to save us from sin and from death and from hell. To save us from sin and the consequences of sin, which are death and hell. And so the need that Jesus comes to meet is our need to be delivered from the wrath of God toward our sin. And that's why we need a savior. That's why we need a substitute. That's why we need one to come and bring light and to die on a cross and to bring forgiveness because we're guilty of sin, and that puts us under the wrath of God. And so our problem is that we're sinners who stand under the wrath of God. But the problem for religious people is that we don't often see ourselves as sinners under the wrath of God. Rather, we see ourselves as decent people who need a little bit more moral improvement. 
We think to ourselves, well, hell is for murderers, for child molesters and drug dealers, not good, hardworking Midwestern people like us. But make no mistake, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, you won't receive Christ. If you receive him as a means to a, a better, more fulfilled life, you're receiving him conditionally based on what you want him to provide for you. But here's the beautiful thing. If we start with our lack of meaning and purpose in life, and we realize that those things exist because of the reality of sin, which alienates us from our creator, which has broken and fractured everything in all creation, that that's the real problem. That if you receive Jesus as the answer to the problem of sin, then you also get meaning and purpose and happiness and fulfillment and all those things that Jesus brings contingently when he forgives you of sin and reconciles you to God. The good news is that you still get all of that. But what I want us to see is that many in our culture preach the gospel as though it just is a means of satisfying those needs in our lives and completely miss the core problem and the root of everything, which is sin. And so you need to receive Jesus tonight as Savior for sin, not as a means to a better life. The Apostle John says here that there's two kinds of rejection. There's worldly rejection, outright dismissal of Jesus, and there's religious rejection, which really looks like conditional acceptance. I'll follow Jesus if he does what I want, if he meets the needs that I have, if he'll conform to the expectations that I want him to be like. John says he came into the world, the world did not know him. He came to his own people. His own people did not receive him. But now we get to the good news. The second response, not rejecting, but receiving. Notice what he says in verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. So here's the good news. It is possible to receive Jesus and therefore to become a child of God, an adopted son or daughter of the Father. What would have to happen for that to be true of us? What would have to happen for that for us to not re reject Jesus, but to receive him? What is it that turns us from rejecters of the light to receivers of the light? Follow this logic. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So notice, first of all, receiving in him and believing him in his name. Those are synonyms. The phrase, who believed in his name, is modifying what it means to receive him. Receiving him, believing in his name, is functionally the same thing. And to those who do that, he gives the right to become children of God. So the possibility of becoming a child of God comes about as a consequence of receiving him and believing in his name. So let's be careful not to insert our understanding of receiving and believing in the text, but rather what John wants to show us, what he means as he uses these phrases. And then catch this, when we believe, we yield ourselves up to be possessed by him who believe. It doesn't mean I check off a box and I just agree with some facts about who Jesus is, it means that I entrust myself to Jesus and I allow him to possess me and I put all of myself into all of him. That's what John means when he says to those who believe in his name, it's a wholehearted trusting and resting in Jesus. But notice the verse doesn't end there. He goes on 
to describe those who have received Jesus and believe in his name, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And this is talking about the new birth. You ever hear a Christian say this? Being born again. You know what they're talking about? They're talking about this. They're talking about, to use a fancy word, regeneration. And notice where this comes from. John says, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but of God. John wants to make it abundantly clear to us that this new birth does not come about because of a human effort, but rather it's the work of the grace of God. This is good news. This is triumphantly, radically good news. Because here's why. No one in this room, no one outside of this room is beyond the reach of the gospel. If all we had were the two categories that John gives us, that some reject Christ and that some receive Christ, some of us would be tempted to think to ourselves, well, those who receive him are obviously better, right? Because receiving Christ is the right answer. That's what John wants us to do. But that's the temptation. Those who receive him, we think they're better. We think they're more godly. But the Apostle John, he says there's actually, there's actually only one group of people, those who reject Christ. All of us start out in that group. The Bible says that no one is righteous, not even one. The good news of the gospel is that despite our rejection, we are not beyond the rescuing grace of God. Despite our rejection, God has come to save us. God, by his gracious mercy, moves in our souls and he grants us new birth. And that new birth, that awakening in our hearts, causes us to respond to faith in Jesus, to receive him and to believe in his name, to be counted as God's sons and daughters and welcomed and adopted into his family. And so this evening, right here, right now, for some of you for the first time, the Holy Spirit of God is at work. Right now, God is granting new birth through the preaching of the word, by the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit, God is at work to give light, to cause people to be born again. And so some of you have rejected him. Until right now, perhaps, perhaps this evening, perhaps you're feeling a presence of new life in your soul. You hear John saying, receive Christ. And something in you right now is beginning to say, yes, I want to do that. I want to receive him. And you should, you should receive him. There's only two possible responses to the truth, that the true light has come into the world. You can reject the light. You can receive the light. And for some of you tonight, God is calling you to receive him. For those of you who have received him, what John wants to do in this text is to cause your heart to explode in worship, to explode in joy, to explode in praise to God. Why is that? It's because you're receiving of him. It's not about how awesome you are. It's not about how awesome I am. But rather, it's a manifestation and evidence of God's grace in your life and granting you this new birth, adopting you into his family, drawing you in as sons and daughters. So if you have received him, John wants to overwhelm you with gratitude and worship and praise and humility and joy and to be sent out, bear these joyful tidings this good news to the world that Christ has come. What's the news that's been entrusted to us? The true light has come into the world. Receive him. The new birth peace, that's totally up to God. We can't cause people to be born again. 
But you know what we can do is we can herald the news to receive him and to come to him and to believe in him. And as we proclaim that news to every tribe and every tongue and every nation that he's at work, drawing people to himself, opening their eyes, moving them from darkness into light, granting the new birth, converting their hearts, awakening their souls so that there is in them an awareness of sin and a comprehension of their need for salvation. If you've received Christ, we have some worshiping to do tonight. We have some celebration to do. We have some praise to do. And as we're sent out here, we have got some proclamation to do. Because Christ has come, God invites you to receive him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you, you are the true light. You, have the, you are the true light that has come into the world. And that even, even though we rejected him, we all, we all walked in darkness, loving the darkness more than the light. We thank you for opening our minds and our hearts to respond and believing faith. God, I just ask that you would help those who have not received you to receive you, perhaps even tonight for the first time. And those who have received you, I pray that there would be new joy this evening and that we would take great comfort and great strength from you. I ask that you would give us a great joy and a great satisfaction and great rejoicing for the joyful news that Christ has come and that we are all called to receive him. We ask all these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our church's mission is to follow God, share his truth, and be examples of the love of Jesus to all. If you would like to know more about us, you can visit our website at www.rittmangrace.org or drop by anytime for one of our in-person Sunday morning worship services. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Rittman Grace Podcast.